Do we live in a computer simulation? Does God exist? These are two of the deepest questions you can ask, and techno-philosopher David Chalmers thinks that they are deeply related. In fact, he thinks that the simulation argument may just be the best argument for the existence of God. But is the creator of the simulated world God? Would he be our God? Would the simulator be a computer programmer, just one level of reality deeper than ours? Or would he be a omnicompetent, divine being, necessarily existent, perfectly good, all-powerful, ever-present, worthy of worship? What kind of God would our simulator be? Welcome to Parker's Pensies. My name is Parker Sedecase, and I'm going to be walking you through David Chalmers' reasoning on why we can't know that we don't live in a computer simulation, why the simulation argument is one of the best arguments for the existence of God, in his estimation, and why he thinks that if we live in a computer simulation, then God exists, but not the classical God of the Abrahamic religions, not a cosmic God, but instead a computer programmer God, like us, but one level of reality deeper. I love David Chalmers. I think he's a fantastic philosopher, one of the best living philosophers out there right now doing it. I love his book. I love the way he thinks. I love that he's stepping into philosophy of religion, especially through the simulation hypothesis. And in this video, I'm going to be offering some criticism of his arguments. That's what philosophers do. I'm a budding, aspiring philosopher, so I'm going to try and take his argument to task. In order to do that, I'm going to formalize his arguments just a little bit. This book, Reality Plus, is written at a popular level, which is really surprising because he goes in deep, deep on some hardcore philosophical topics. It's really impressive that Dr. Chalmers can go so deep into philosophy without using all the technical jargon. So that's pretty cool. But in order to find the right premises to attack for his simulator God argument, I'm going to need to formalize it just a little bit. I'll put that on the screen for us, and then I'll show you where I think we can pick on the argument. With all that in mind, let's get started. So right off the bat, why does David Chalmers think that we might be living in a computer simulation? Well, he gives his own version of Nick Bostrom's simulation argument. Now, real quick, Nick Bostrom's simulation argument goes like this. There's three premises, one of which is true. Either one, we will never be able to make simulated worlds with virtual conscious beings that think and have a conscious perspective like us. For whatever reason, maybe we go extinct beforehand. Two, we will be able to make a world like that with digital simulated conscious beings, but maybe we won't. We'll just decide as a human race never to do that, maybe for moral reasons. And then premise three, we're most likely already living in a computer simulation. Why? Because we're able to do it and we didn't stop doing it. And so there's going to be tons and tons of simulated worlds. And if you think about the fact that in those simulated worlds, they can simulate their own worlds. So there's a nested simulation all the way down. There's going to be millions of simulated worlds with billions of simulated beings in each simulated world. So billions and billions and billions of simulated conscious beings. So if most conscious beings in the universe are simulated, well, then you're probably simulated yourself. And so we probably live in a computer simulation. That's Nick Bostrom's version. Chalmers gives a similar argument to Bostrom on page 85 of Reality Plus. So he says, at least one in 10 non-SIM populations will each create a thousand SIM populations. If at least one in 10 non-SIM populations will each create a thousand SIM populations, 
then at least 99% of intelligent beings are sims. If at least 99% of intelligent beings are sims, we are probably sims. For conclusion, so we are probably sims. Now Chalmers spends the rest of the chapter fleshing that out a little bit more and talking about sim blockers. These would be reasons to think premise one of Bostrom's argument is true, that we're not going to make simulated conscious intelligent beings like ourselves, that it's impossible, that we won't do it. So he goes through, these are sim blockers and says, if there's no sim blockers, then we're most likely already in a computer simulation. So then he formalizes his argument, he pairs it down a little bit more and works on it. And then at the end of the chapter, Chalmers gives his favorite version of the simulation argument. Premise one, if there are no sim blockers, most human-like beings are sims. Two, if most human-like beings are sims, we are probably sims. Three, conclusion. So if there are no sim blockers, we are probably sims. And then he goes on and gives reasons for why he thinks there are no sim blockers. So that's what can be called the simulation argument. That's why Chalmers thinks that we can't know that we don't live in a computer simulation. I mean, the whole book is elaborating on this premise, on this argument. So definitely go check out the book. What I'm most interested in for this video is what kind of being our simulator would be. Would it be our God? And what kind of God would that simulator be? Chalmers argues that the simulator would be a type of God he or she or it, whoever is our base reality computer programmer simulator, would be uh, omnipotent concerning the simulation. If they had access to the source code, they would be practically omnipotent. They could practically do whatever they want in the computer simulation. Now, that doesn't seem like full-blown omnipotence, but it's practically omnipotence. Chalmers argues that the simulator would also be functionally omniscient. They could use a Cosmoscope, a term that he coined that is used in sci-fi now, which is pretty cool, to zoom in on different areas of the simulated world to find out whatever they wanted to find out. Again, if they had access to the source code, maybe they would just know everything like a priori before the simulation even gets going because they're programming it. So the simulator would be functionally omnipotent and functionally omniscient concerning their own simulation, our world. But Chalmers argues that there's no reason to think our simulator would be omnibenevolent. I mean, why, why think that? If it's just a being like us, but one level more real or one level deeper in reality, then, I mean, I'm not omnibenevolent. You're not omnibenevolent. Why think that some computer programmer in base reality would be? So we get close to a type of God, but not to the Abrahamic God, who is said to be all-powerful, all-knowing, all present and uh, all good. So Chalmers makes this key distinction between a cosmic God and a local God. Cosmic God being like an Abrahamic type God, the classical understanding of God, and a local God being this new understanding of a creator who is functionally omnipotent and functionally omniscient, maybe good, maybe bad, but definitely not omnibenevolent. Now, what evidence could there possibly be for a creator at all, a cosmic creator or a local simulator creator. Well, Chalmers points to things like teleological arguments, arguments from design, arguments from like the complexity of the human eye or the design and apparent intelligence out in the world, out in the food chain, or like the cosmological constants. If we zoom all the way back and see what must be the case, look at all these fine-tuned details that need to be in place in order for life to emerge, evolve, be at all on earth. So there's this broad scope family 
called teleological arguments. It's looking at design in cre creation, in nature, and saying if there's design, then there's a designer. Now, historically, people have used these design arguments to argue for a cosmic God, but Chalmers is saying, hey, perhaps we can stop. We don't need to go all the way to full-blown cosmic God. And maybe this is evidence that we live in a computer simulation instead of base reality with a spiritual being who created everything. Maybe design and teleology is evidence that we live in a computer simulation. So Chalmers proposes a type of symmetry between these two. There's two theories here. There's a cosmic God and there's a local God, and they're symmetrical. How would you argue for one over against the other? It looks like we need a symmetry breaker in order to prefer one of these hypotheses over the other. If they both explain the evidence equally well, then we can't choose between the two. They're there's symmetry. Let's break the symmetry. So how does David Chalmers break the symmetry? Well, he proposes that God, a cosmic God, if he exists, must be worthy of worship. That's like entailed by a cosmic God. But he thinks that no being can possibly be worthy of worship. And therefore, an essential property of God is like not instantiable. It's not able to be realized. No being can exemplify this property of worship worthiness. But if God existed, he would have to exemplify that property. And so since no being can possibly exemplify that property, then any being who would have to have that property in order to exist can't exist. And we're messing a lot with modalities here, and I'm saying possibly before and after. And again, it's, it's pitched at the popular level, and I'm not going to start doing the modal logic here and lose the whole audience. Not that I'm super great at modal logic anyways, but these are some very strong claims that Chalmers is making in order to break the symmetry between a local simulator god and a cosmic god. I think it'll be worth reading Chalmers in his own words at length in order for us to get a feel for his objection to the cosmic god. Chalmers says, even if our simulator is a benevolent being, why should we worship her? She may be working to create as many worlds as possible with a sufficient balance of happiness over unhappiness in order to maximize the amount of happiness in the cosmos. If so, we might admire her and be thankful to her, but again, there's no need for worship. I find myself thinking that even if our simulator is our creator, is all-powerful, is all-knowing, and is all good, I still don't think of her as a god. The reason is that the simulator is not worthy of worship, and to be a god in the genuine sense, one must be worthy of worship. For me, this is helpful in understanding why I'm not religious and why I consider myself an atheist. It turns out that I'm open to the idea of a creator who is close to all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. I had once thought that this idea is inconsistent with a naturalistic view of the world, but the simulation idea makes it consistent. There remains a more fundamental reason for my atheism. I do not think any being is worthy of worship. The point here goes beyond simulation. Even if the Abrahamic God exists with all those godlike qualities of perfection, I will respect, admire, and even be in awe of him. But I won't feel bound to worship him. If Aslan, the lion god of Narnia, exists as the embodiment of all goodness and wisdom, I won't feel bound to worship him. Being all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, and entirely wise aren't sufficient reason for worship. Generalizing the point, I don't think any qualities can make a being worthy of worship. As a result, we never have good reason to worship any being. No possible being is worthy of worship. 
I mean, that's a really strong claim. And that is what I'm arguing is David Chalmers' symmetry breaker between a cosmic god and a simulator. So why think we might be living in a computer simulation? Well, because of the simulation argument. If you don't have a good reason to think we're not living in a computer simulation, if you don't have a good sim blocker for either Bostrom's argument or one of David Chalmers' arguments, then we're probably living in a computer simulation. But you can also get there from design arguments, from teleology. Look around you. Everything looks designed. It looks like we're in the perfect place for life to exist. Why is that? Is there a designer to our world? Yes, but it's a simulator. It's not a cosmic God in the Abrahamic sense of the word. It's just a computer programmer, one level of reality deeper than ours. So then I'm going to summarize David Chalmers' reasoning in what I call the simulator God argument. And it's going to be seven quick premises. Here we go. One, if there's a creator of our universe, then the creator of our universe is either a simulator God or a cosmic God. Two, teleological arguments are evidence for a creator of the universe. Therefore, three, the creator of our universe is either a simulator God or a cosmic God. Four, if a cosmic God exists, then he would be worthy of worship. Five, no possible being is worthy of worship. Therefore, six, no cosmic God exists. And therefore, seven, the creator of our universe is a simulator God. So as far as I can tell, there's at least like four ways to challenge this argument. You could start with the first premise and you could say that there's actually not symmetry between the simulator God and the cosmic God. Maybe you go in and you include extra phenomena to explain. Maybe you go in with abstract objects or moral facts or the cosmological argument and you just include more. Maybe you have a cumulative case instead of focusing narrowly in on teleology. A second way to argue against this argument is to challenge premise four and to say, hey, look, if a cosmic God exists, he wouldn't have to be worthy of worship. But I actually think that premise is, is uh, valid, is sound. I think it's true. So I'm not going to argue against that one. A third and fourth way to challenge this argument is to pick on premise five and offer undercutting and rebutting defeaters for it. Premise five says no possible being is worthy of worship. And so we can undercut that and say that that premise is undermotivated, or we can give a positive reason for thinking that some possible being would be or is worthy of worship. So in providing an undercutting defeater for premise five, I would say that Dr. Chalmers gives us a weak epistemic claim for a strong modal conclusion when a strong modal claim is actually needed. Chalmers reasons like this, I don't see how a being could be worthy of worship, therefore no possible being could be worthy of worship. Now I think conceivability actually is a good guide in metaphysics. I think it's a good guide for like metaphysical modality, for metaphysical possibility. But it seems super strong to say, I don't see how a being could be worthy of worship, therefore it's not possible. It seems like that's a weak epistemic claim. I, I don't see how it could be possible, therefore no way it's possible. It doesn't seem to follow that just because Dr. Chalmers doesn't see how a being could be worthy of worship, that there is no being that's worthy of worship. Why think that our credences and our conceptions of what we would do in the face of a holy, cosmic, necessary being, like the Abrahamic God, I think that our intuitions about what we would do in that situation are any good. It's not like we're always in that situation or anything like that. Who, who knows what you would do, right? But then secondly, I mean, most of the human race has thought that God, if he exists, would be worthy of worship. And we know this because many, many, many people worship God. It seems like the majority of the world doesn't share Chalmers's intuition on this. That might be an indication that this is too strong of a claim, especially this epistemic claim and the bridge to the strong modal conclusion that it's not possible for worship-worthy being to exist. So it looks like Chalmers hasn't provided the right type of support 
for this strong modal claim, and therefore premise 5 is, is under-motivated. But we might also offer a rebutting defeater for premise 5. Now, undercutting is meant to take away the support of a premise or an argument or a belief. A rebutting defeater is actually supposed to like rebut it, to deny it, to push it away, to refute it. Now, here I want to argue that Chalmers doesn't actually define worship in a way that's helpful for this argument. What does he mean by worship? Is it just like an act of prostration, of falling down on your face and saying, I worship you, God? Or could worship also include other things? In the Christian tradition, worship is a big concept and it can be applied and administered in lots of different ways. Theologian John Frame explains that there are various senses in which humans worship God, a narrow sense and a broad sense. Frame says that the narrow sense is public, corporate worship, what the Jews did in the temple, what Christians do in the weekly gathering to celebrate the resurrection. And Frame characterizes the broad sense of worship as a worship that we perform all the time as we seek to live godly lives, claiming that when we glorify God, it is a living sacrifice, it is true worship. Frame further claims that the fear and trembling in Scripture is worship, the typical response of a human being in the presence of God. So worship, at least according to Frame, isn't merely falling prostrate on your face before God, though that could be a particular form of worship, but instead it's a much larger concept which includes particular actions like giving sacrifices, going to corporate gatherings, singing songs of praise, acknowledging God's goodness, giving thanks, for what he's done, and even dedicating one's whole life to him. It seems like Chalmers unwittingly admits that he would worship God if he were in a cosmic God's presence. Chalmers insists that he would not be compelled to worship a cosmic God, even while admitting that if the Abrahamic God exists with all those godlike qualities of perfection, he would respect, admire, and even be in awe of him. Earlier on the same page, he even admits that he'd be thankful to such a God, but he would not feel bound to worship him. But then what's left of the concept of worship if we remove giving thanks, giving admiration, showing respect, and even being in awe in the presence of God? It seems like Chalmers is saying that he would worship God if God existed. But that means that this worship-worthy quality, this property that Chalmers said is not instantiable, that is impossible for any being to have, actually doesn't look like it's that impossible for a being to have, because if Chalmers was in the presence of a cosmic god, it looks like he would do many of the things which religious folks take to be worship. So all that to say, it looks like the simulator god argument that I formulated from Chalmers' own words does not successfully break the symmetry between a simulator god and a cosmic god. So insofar as teleology is evidence for a creator, it looks like we still can't adjudicate just on that fact between a simulator and a cosmic god. So now I want to try and break the symmetry by offering some meta-ethical reasons in favor of a cosmic god, which can be explained by the Abrahamic god and I don't think can be explained by a simulator. First up are moral facts or moral truths. There are moral truths that are true in every possible world, like the truth or fact that it is always wrong to torture babies for fun. That's true in every possible world. If we're living in a computer simulation, that's still true because even digital babies feel pain. Why? Because I'm in this world where babies feel pain. I was once a baby. If I'm a digital being, then I was capable of feeling pain. And so it's reasonable to think all the other babies in the simulated world are capable of feeling pain, and therefore it would be morally wrong to torture them for fun. But how do we account for this moral truth? Can the simulator make that moral truth false? It doesn't look like it. Could the simulator make a simulated world wherein it's okay, it's actually morally praiseworthy for sims to torture baby sims for fun? It doesn't look like that. So if that's a moral truth, 
then it looks like it needs to be grounded somewhere else beyond the simulator. The simulator exists in one possible world if it's a being like us, one level of reality deeper. But that's like a trans world truth. That's a necessary truth. It's true in every possible world. Now, if a cosmic god exists, then we can ground that in a cosmic god because a cosmic god presumably exists in every possible world he's a necessary being and so we can take this necessary moral truth and it fits very nicely with a necessary moral agent god how about the moral status of human beings if we're living in a computer simulation it seems like we still have moral status it seems like we still have intrinsic value if we live in a computer simulation it seems like i still have moral status as a human being i'm just a virtual human being i'm a digital human being but a human being nonetheless why would we limit human dignity only to those humans in base reality i mean there's something that it's like to be me i'm still a phenomenally conscious being. If that's what we're grounding our ethics in, there's something that it's like to be me, even if I live in a computer simulation. I'm still a rational, moral, volitional agent. And so are you. And you're still worthy of dignity and respect. And this is borne out in how we treat each other. So we don't go around saying we might be in a computer simulation, therefore human rights are out the window. No, even if we are, we have human rights here. How do we ground those? What are those grounded in? Well, if you take a cosmic God view, we have moral dignity and status because of what we are. We're made in the image of God. That can't be taken from you. It's not a functional type thing. It's an ontology thing. You are something that is made in God's image, and God has this intrinsic value and worth, and he bestows it on us by creating us in his image. Can the same be said for the computer simulator? I mean, even if it can, we can ask, why does the base reality simulator have moral status, dignity? Actually, they may not be base reality beings themselves. They could still be simulated beings. All that matters is that they're one level deeper than us. There are simulator, but maybe they're still simulated and they're not even in base reality. So where does the human dignity, where, where do we ground our moral status if we're made by a computer simulator, just one level below us, who's not omnibenevolent, who's not a perfect being, who's not a necessary being, who didn't make us in his perfect image. I'm not saying it's impossible or anything like that, but I'm saying one explanation, the cosmic God explanation, just fits the phenomena better. It explains what needs to be explained better and more easily than the simulator God hypothesis. Now, how about moral knowledge? On the cosmic God hypothesis, we're again made in God's image, and he made us to know him. He made us to be his arbiters here on earth, to go and extend his will and his dominion and cultivate the earth for his glory and his honor. His moral law is written on our hearts. It's actually part of our being. He's also given us direct divine revelation. He's given us general revelation. He's given us intuitions and built us with certain capacities to recognize moral truths. He's wired it into our very being. He's written it on our heart. There's all sorts of explanations for how we know moral truths on cosmic God theism. On simulator God theism, how do we know moral truths? And why think that our simulator knows moral truths? If the story of base reality is just Darwinistic evolution, why think that our cognitive faculties, why think that base reality beings' cognitive faculties evolved in step with moral truths? Why think that their cognitive faculties evolved in order to know moral truths more often than not, instead of just survival beliefs? You know, beliefs that help you survive, but are not necessarily morally true or good. Now, I'm not saying that has to be the story. I'm saying that there's room in the simulator God story for morality and our cognitive faculties, our, our apprehension of moral truths to come apart. Where it looks like they don't come apart as easily 
on cosmic god theism. Now, those are just some meta-ethical considerations which I think can function as a symmetry breaker between a cosmic god and a local simulator god. I've given a couple reasons why I think Chalmers' simulator god argument doesn't go through, why his proposed symmetry breaker of worship worthiness, that God can't be worthy of worship, but he must be. I've given a reason for thinking that's under-motivated, and another reason for thinking that Chalmers himself would worship God if he were in his presence. And then I've tried to argue that the cosmic god better explains moral truths, moral duties, moral facts, like meta-ethical stuff than a simulator god. Now, I don't think this is like a knockdown, drag out, I don't think that I've won or anything like that. I just love this conversation. I love the techno philosophy that David Chalmers has inaugurated and made popular. I love that he's writing at a popular level. I love that he's bringing in philosophy of religion, and I just want to join the conversation. So I'd love to hear from you guys. What do you think? Let me know in the comments. And the arguments from this video are all written up in my Substack, Parker's you can find the link in the description. For all the philosophy nerds out there who want to see it in more detail, you can. It's there. I'd love to hear your feedback. Again, like I said, this is a work in progress. I'm not claiming that I've refuted anybody or anything like that. I want to keep this conversation going. So please let me know in the comments. Please let me know over there on Substack. And if you guys like this kind of content, then let me know. Leave me a like, make sure you subscribe to the Parker's Pensies YouTube channel. And if you want to go above and beyond, become a YouTube member or support me on Patreon. Until next time, all glory to the cosmic God.